Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and war. Today's topic is success and failure in the Israel Defense Forces. Our speaker is Eitan Shamir, who is the former head of the National Security Doctrine Department at the Israel Ministry of Strategic Affairs. He is also the co-author of the book entitled The Art of Military Innovation, Lessons from the Israel Defense Forces. I want to learn from Eitan how Israel was asleep at the switch on October 7th and how the IDF has adapted to the complex military operation that is ongoing in Gaza. Buckle up. Eitan, can you please begin with your opening six-minute remarks? Why is that the relatively small, relatively poor Israeli armed forces have long been exceptionally innovative? Decade after decade, they originated new tactics in the air, at sea, for commander raids, and also for the armored warfare. There is a saying that the mother of all innovation is necessity. In Israel's case, war is a present danger. The sense of urgency means addressing battlefield needs as they rise and short period from idea to operational use. Iron Dome was developed and fielded in four years against the average 15 years it usually takes to develop a new missile systems. Cost is another factor. Being poor can be an advantage. It forces you not to keep adding new costly features that will eventually result in overpriced systems that are impossible to purchase and maintain. There was also the issue of embargo. There were no external sources which forced Israel to innovate. Israel faced many years with limited access to military equipment, as the U.S. and other Western countries refused to sell weapons to Israel. Israel is a nation in arms. The developers are soldiers, and either them or their kids or relatives will use what they develop. Oftentimes, a reservist who is a developer himself will come back from service with an idea and will go ahead and pursue it. There is an open-door policy. Israel is a casual society. Everyone can easily get to everyone. So ideas can surface bottom-up. Low-ranking soldiers and officers approach their superiors with ideas and then receive support for it. So these factors combined explains the remarkable innovation of the IDF throughout its relatively short history. How could the Israelis have been surprised and successfully attacked by unsophisticated terrorists using bulldozers, drones, and gliders? What happened? We should never underestimate our opponents. We are not dealing here with some militants or running around with rifles. What was demonstrated on the 7th was a lot of innovation from the other side. We have to give them credit. These people are learning. Hamas is a sophisticated organization. They were able to surprise Israel in this way. Was the October 7 failure caused by overconfidence or hubris? Was Hamas perceived not to be a strategic threat? Did the Israel military believe that Hamas was incapable of putting an attack like this together and therefore Israel should employ its defense against other threats? To paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, was this attack a known unknown? I was speaking with one of the major generals I know in the defense forces. A few days after the attack, you know, he said to me, Eitan, you know what our problem is? That we suffer from a lack of imagination. The assumptions were Hamas is the most primitive opponent that Israel is facing. 
Israel is facing a serious threat from the north, from Hezbollah. Hezbollah has said it's going to do what Hamas has done. You know, that he's going to send its own elite forces to capture Israeli military strongpoints, villages, and kibbutzim. So the whole attention was focused to the north, and Hamas played along trying to make the impression that it's rebuilding Gaza economy and society. So the Israelis had the wrong impression that the tiger has tamed. It's very sleepy. It's not going anywhere. And even though there were intelligence reports describing exactly what Hamas is going to do, the idea was that they are far from being able to really exercise it. Let's compare October 7th in Gaza with Pearl Harbor. Immediately after the Japanese attack, the U.S. Congress made a declaration of war that was nearly unanimous, and that was followed up by thousands of Americans volunteering to fight. The country went from being isolationist to a great military power. Tell us about the shift in the Israeli psychology from being a country at peace to one at war. There is the Israel before the 7th, and there is the Israel after the 7th, and there is a remarkable difference. Israel is aspiring to be Athens, but it is forced to be Sparta. Israel felt very confident in the last few years. The Abraham Accords, the Haidek boom, and defense spending of Israel it came down to less than 4% of the GDP, which is remarkably low in Israel's history. Quality of life in Israel became like European standard. And now you see everyone deeply understand that we are going to invest in the military. You see the eulogies that mothers are talking over the graves of their sons the fallen soldiers. And indeed, you know, the government was reluctant to go into Gaza in 2014, in 2008, because the military said that we might lose 500 soldiers in such an operation. Today, nobody talks about the casualties. It's obvious that you have to sacrifice. In that sense, I think Israel has completely changed itself. And in that sense, the comparison that you're making to Pearl Harbor and how it changed completely the mood in America is very, very true. The Americans also uh, didn't uh, thought much about the Japanese uh, capabilities, their military uh, skills. The other side, coming up, uh, exploiting your weaknesses. The Hamas, they knew that the IDF and the Israeli intelligence is monitoring them. And they were able to do a good job keeping the secret of when is the operation is going to happen to select group until the last moment. They avoid using electronics, computers, digital information. What they do is they have the men at 5 a.m. coming to pray in the mosque every day. And in the mosque, you just tell them word of mouth. They are already organized in like small cells. And the Kalachnikov is in the house. And the RPG is in the house. Now, the, you know, the IDF soldiers are finding it under the beds of the children. It's not the Syrian army that if you want to move five divisions, you have to take a few days to shift the logistics and to put the tanks in place and all of that. No, it's very, very nimble, very agile. And in that sense, they were able to pull it together very nicely. Next topic is the failure in human intelligence. Our American audience watched the TV show Fauda, which showed the strength of Israeli intelligence. How did the Mossad and Israeli military intelligence blow this so badly with a surprise Hamas attack. Apparently, it wasn't infiltrated good enough. Gaza is a closed place. Like, how do you recruit Iranians? You see them when they are outside Iran, and then it's the opportunity to recruit them. The same with the West Bank. The West Bank is more open. The problem with Gaza is that it's quite closed. 
The human factor, I think this is the weakest link of the Israeli intelligence in Gaza. They were able to have some success since then, pinpoint tactical success to find this person or that person and take them off. But the IDF has not been able so far to find the abducted, nor to find the top leaders of Hamas. There is now a war in Gaza under urban conditions with tunnels, drones, and booby traps. How is the IDF innovating? Urban fighting is a very difficult and messy uh, business. In Gaza, it's even more challenging because of the tunnels. And Hamas is also using drones. And also there is the subterrain. You clear an area and you move in. And then suddenly you face from your rear soldiers that come out from the tunnels. So a huge challenge. There's been a lot of chatter in the press about flooding the tunnels. Does this make any sense? Israel has many problems which are unique, and you don't have off-the-shelf solutions. And the tunnel is exactly uh, such a problem. There is the unit, the combat engineering elite unit, uh, Yahalom. In 2019, there were huge tunnels that were discovered from Lebanon to Israel to serve Hezbollah's Radwan forces. Israel has avoided a strategic disaster by uh, discovering these tunnels and destroying them. Now, in Gaza, it's very easy to dig those tunnels because the soil is very sandy. Next topic is the Israeli war plan. Will it be house-to-house fighting, like Anthony King mentioned on a previous podcast? And how quick will Israeli ground forces call in airstrikes? And what military innovations are you seeing in the fight? Hamas was preparing for the IDF invasion in Gaza. Every school, every mosque, every hospital, every second building has explosive in it, has uh, rockets inside, has uh, munitions, guns. A lot of them were also booby-trapped, leveling of these houses. If there were Hamas fighters inside, they were killed. Israel was calling for the population to leave the area by creating humanitarian corridors. And once the fighting began, they experienced similar fighting, like in Raqqa, on Mosul, or Fallujah. The result was the same, because the fighter is from house to house. If you ask about innovation, one of the things that the IDF was working to improve before the Gaza war was the collaboration, what they call jointments, between the Air Force and the ground forces, trying to minimize the um, cycle between the identification of a target and calling for a precision strike with a missile. Mostly it's coming from the air, either from drones or either from the uh, fighter jets themselves. We see a very good payoff because a lot of the achievements of the IDF was achieved exactly in this way, where exposing by the ground forces the Hamas fighters, then calling for a strike, a very accurate strike, and destroying the threat. Why now? Why did Hamas decide to attack Israel on October 7th? I think what they had in mind is they saw what happened to Israel domestically, internally, the political rift, and they thought Israel is weak. This is a good time to attack Israel because Israel is split. Some of the pilots even refused to fly. Some of the reservists said they would not join a campaign. What they did get right beyond any expectation was the success they had on the 7th in terms of killing Lots of Israelis in terms of kidnapping many more people than they hoped for. What they didn't get right on the 7th, in terms of their operational planning, they had units that were supposed to go deeper into Israel, 
We saw their operational plans when they were captured or killed. They hoped to be able to fight back, to resist or to hold those kibbutzim, those military outposts that they were able to capture for a few hours. I think they were hoping to stay there for um, at least a few days and to repel the IDF attempts to recapture it. Now, in terms of the response into Gaza, I don't think that they believed that the IDF will go for a full ground operation with all its might, with the objective in mind to completely destroy Hamas. They were hoping this victory of the first hours will energize, you know, other forces around Israel, which are the Israeli Arabs, in the radio of Hamas, they called the Israeli Arabs, take a knife and go kill Israelis. They kept calling for it. They were hoping for the West Bank to rise, and they were hoping for Hezbollah to join in. They had all these people they abducted, international experts. They all told me on the first days that Israel uh, will not be able to launch a serious uh, military campaign because of all these uh, hostages and their families will start the pressure. And so Israel will have to be more careful and go immediately into negotiation with Hamas. And I said to them, no, it's not going to happen. You don't understand the mood here. We are going to launch a very serious offensive into Gaza with the objective of destroying Hamas. Who got called up to serve in Gaza? There are people my age who are still serving and still with their field units. I was in my bed on Saturday, 7th of October, but my daughter who just finished her military service, all her friends are in special operation units, paratrooper, you name it. They go to the pub, they hang together, and they were all together throughout the night. In the morning, they got a call up to report to the units. And she drove them to some of the meeting points, and then she came home, and she woke me up, and the, you know how she woke me up? She said, Daddy, get up, we have a war. And she knows what's operation, you know, Operation Gaza, rockets here, rockets there. We are used to it. No, this was something different. Everyone in Israel is a member of the IDF and its reserves. The IDF is a people's national army that brings strengths and weaknesses. If you call up the reserves, the economy can't function very long. The reservists bring to the army skills and knowledge, and they will also not tolerate bullshit. As you said, everyone is involved. There is a professional core, career officers, and top generals. So what we have is also conscripts. It's the training period for your entire life service in a reserve. I can tell you that the professional army don't like the reservists because it's exactly the reservists who are pointing at them with a lot of criticism. The reservists have this mentality of, okay, you're calling me? Don't waste my time on nonsense. You know, I left my job. I left my home. I'm coming to do the reserves. Then if you need to train me, train me but don't waste my time. Some of them are themselves, you know, officers, and they're doing jobs. Some of them are CEOs, some of them high-tech entrepreneurs. They know something about decision-making, and, and they know also about the military. It's hard for every military, when the bulk of the military are reservists, it's hard to maintain the same level of proficiency and training, but there is huge advantages in terms of the reservists. They are very resourceful. They come with a lot of ideas, they are very committed. They are able to organize things that the usual military is not able to do it. In terms of innovation, a lot of them are coming from the military industry themselves. They're coming back 
and four from their reserve duty to their laboratories, and they are the ones who are developing some of the best equipment. The thesis of your book is that Israel has such a small army, but it's both powerful and innovative. What is unsaid here is that all able-bodied men and women serve in the armed forces, three years for men and nearly two years for women. And then for decades, the men are in the reserves for a month a year. This is an enormous cost to society. Your children are currently serving in the IDF, and my kids are attending college, learning about the arts and cognitive science. You decided you want to live in the Middle East. Then you have to understand it is a constant struggle, constant fight. People are asking, you know, because it's a very Western way of mind, when we will see the end of it. Well, you know, you're not going to see the end of it because regardless of Israel, if you look around in the Middle East, countries are constantly fighting and there's constantly wars and killing. And this is the neighborhood, as we say. It is what it is. But having said that, I think Israel is doing the best of the situation. Do soldiers benefit from serving in the IDF? The gains that you get from, from uh, high-level education and especially in a good U.S. university, it's true on the one hand. On the other hand, I see so many young people in the West that are not sure what to do with themselves. In terms of real life, they have very little experience. And this is the stuff that the military provides you with, especially the high-tech sector in Israel. If you come from uh, Unit uh, A200, and you go through the whole cyber program, and you get all the experience, you go through the training there, you, what you do in six months there, you do in three years in the university. I can ensure you that. Because they study, you know, like in yeshiva, from the morning to the evening. And then they get a, an exam every week. And if you fail, you're out. And the motivation is skyrocketing, of course, in these courses. Companies in Israel like Checkpoint were established on the basis of the people who came out and on the projects that they started in the military because the military gives you a lot of room and attitude to experiment. You look at Israel's uh, leadership today, leaders in the academy and leaders in the business and politics, it's not necessarily a waste of time. How do you compare the training and experience in the IDF with college for Americans? It really depends because it's so much about your experiences and whether you are in like a combat support role, combat role, you're just working in an office, you are in like a really special unit like intelligence unit like A200 or you are in a like a special forces operation unit. And the same with university. I mean, if you're studying uh, like applied mathematics, physics, uh, you know, it's one experience. If you are doing gender studies and critical theory, race theory, this is a different uh, experience. And of course, if you go to Harvard and whether you go to some kind of a community college somewhere, right, in some remote place, then again, it's a very different experience, right? You're groomed to serve in the IDF and you already start to prepare when you are in high school. They go with a lot of pride and high expectations. Today, there is a whole process of negotiation with the military as to where do you fit and where do you want to serve and what are your options? And there's all this uh, transparency of your options. When they're in 11th grade, you already go for your exams, psychometric exams and interviews. And then you go for courses and special training before the military service. Between the high school and the military, many aspire to become officers. Now, when you go in the U.S., when you go to West Point, it means that you think about becoming an officer for life for 25 years. You know, it's hard to make these choices when you're 18, but in the IDF, they become officers just to serve another year or two, 
to do what uh, there is in Hebrew, this term, meaningful service, to do a meaningful service, to become meaningful, to make a contribution. This generation, they say, I'm giving you a contribution, but I want something back. What do I want back? I want my development, either soft skills like leadership, communication, to show on my resume when I come out, or like hard skills like computers. I can go on and continue my civilian life with some kind of good qualifications. At the beginning of the State of Israel in 1948, Prime Minister Ben-Gurion made the decision to keep the ultra-Orthodox, the black hats, exempt from the IDF. At the time, there were a few thousand, but today, the ultra-Orthodox are 13% of the Israeli Jewish population and growing. It is unsustainable for the secular Jews to defend the deeply religious ones. There have been reports that the ultra-Orthodox have signed up to defend Israel during this Gaza war. What we saw since the 7th is very encouraging because we saw a lot of expression of support and empathy. For example, usually they're not praying for the safety of the state and the Israeli soldiers. And they started to do this. There were a lot of demonstration of support from them. And when someone from the community is, is enlisted in the IDF, he will come back home, the neighbors, not to see, he will take off his uniform and put his civilian clothes, you know, his, his ultra-Orthodox black uniform outfit. And you started to see soldiers from the ultra-Orthodox, those few who did enlist, going back to their neighborhoods very proud, and they would be cheered. This was immensely encouraging. However, since then, the IDF has not seen flocking of Haredim, you know, ultra-Orthodox, to the recruitment office. Why do the ultra-Orthodox rabbi discourage religious young men from joining the IDF? Are they afraid that it will expose them to the secular world? Is it because it interferes with studying the Torah? Do they want to prevent interactions between religious men and attractive secular Jewish women with a potential consequence that they would abandon a religious way of life because of temptation? I would say it's 80% by being exposed to modern society, being tempted to leave the community, understanding that they have other options than the ultra-Orthodox life that is offered to them. The ultra-Orthodox society is obeying its rabbis, and the way the rabbis control this community is exactly by making sure that there are thick walls between this community and the rest of society. So that's why the military is such a big threat on their way of life, at least in the eyes of the rabbis. 150,000 Israeli citizens who live in the north of Israel, near the Lebanese border, have evacuated their homes and are currently living in central Israel. This is an untenable situation for Israel. You can't have that many people living away from their homes for long. Fighting with Hezbollah might escalate at any time. Sometimes countries fight two fronts, where one sector is hot and the other is cold, until the military objectives in the first sector are met. In World War II, the Germans defeated Poland in 1939 before turning on the French in June 1940. Is Israel waiting to clean up and stabilize the situation with Hamas in Gaza before escalating the war in the north against Hezbollah? So Hezbollah has a different strategic calculus. They have an obligation to the Iranians. I don't think the Iranians want to use them for an all-out war now. It costs a lot to build Hezbollah. So I think the instructions from Iran is not escalation. There's another consideration which Hezbollah is part of Lebanon. 
They are the Shiites in Lebanon, and Lebanon is in uh, trouble. The country is fragile anyway, and they will be accused of dragging Lebanon into war. So their situation is quite complicated. Israel's objectives are much more limited here. It's not about destroying Hezbollah. It's not about eliminating it. It will be almost impossible to do, uh, and the cost will be enormous. But for this limited objective, you might have to clash much more seriously with Hezbollah. Now, there was a dilemma whether to go directly, you know, as forces went into Gaza, to go and attack Hezbollah. Bibi Netanyahu vetoed this. The magnitude of the mission there is big enough. And also because the U.S. asked him not to do it. So the current thinking, though, is now to take a brief, understand what's going on in Gaza, and somehow contain the situation in the north, even though the cost of those people who left their homes is not easy. But strategically, this is the right choice on the national level to absorb it. And then once we finish the mission in Gaza, then to give the diplomacy a chance, trying to persuade Hezbollah to move out. And in the meantime, the IDF could prepare itself, then maybe to go for an operation against Hezbollah. Eitan. Where do you live? I live in Modin, which is just between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And how many miles are you from the Gaza Strip? 50 miles. Okay, you live an hour away from the war. There is talk that for Israel to feel secure, it needs to have a 5 to 10 kilometer no-man zone to prevent another bulldozer and glider attack. What do you think about that? I don't live near Gaza, but I look outside the window. I see uh, the lights of a Palestinian village just across the fields. And they are under Israeli security responsibility, but they are Palestinians, Palestinians, not Israeli Arabs. It's a small area. You can't escape the realities of the area. We live in a very nice village, like a classic American suburb, very nice people. And I always tell my wife, if you don't look up, you can imagine that you are somewhere in Switzerland or in California or whatever. But if you look up, you see the tower of the mosque and you understand that you are in the Middle East. You don't need in Gaza 10 kilometers. I think it's enough if you have uh, five kilometers. You, you can carve out five kilometers. And then you have to put a system, a better defense system. You're not allowed to put mines because it's against international conventions. But you can do a better fencing system. How effective are landmines? I think if there were mines, that it would have been much harder for them to cross. The first thing is to make sure that on the other side... There will be no threat. Now, it doesn't mean that there will be no Hamas because there are Hamas in the West Bank. But if you leave them alone and they are in control of the whole area and the population and they are in control of the customs and they are in control of all the money that comes in and they are in control of the salaries and everything, then they build the military capabilities that we saw. So you make sure that this doesn't happen. We had this experience also in 2002 People said, ah, Israel is not going to gain anything. It's impossible to stop the suicide bombers. And Israel was able to do it. But, you know, it took some time and it will take some time in Gaza. Now, you'll have to have some security control for your forces to go in and to do what we call mowing the grass operation, to make sure that every now and then you go in and you take out some of the terrorists, you blow up their facilities. You don't just leave them to develop like we did for 20 years in Gaza. We heard that there was a complete breakdown in the internal defense of the kibbutz and the villages near the Gaza border. These towns and kibbutzim have men who are in the IDF reserve, who are armed, who were supposed to repel the surprise attack as first responders. What happened? You'll have a military unit that is 
recruited from the members of the kibbutz or the village, like Israel used to have in the 40s and 50s. And they will have their guns at home. They had like five members of the uh, security squad. Their guns were in the locker and they didn't have the keys. I mean, these were the stories, you know, because nobody really expected anything because it was the weekend and it was a holiday. So some were abroad, some were with their families. So out of 10, there were three or four. Again, they didn't have the weapons because the IDF told them that it's more risky to have the weapon at home because it can get stolen. So put them in some kind of safe room somewhere in the middle of the kibbutz and someone will have the key. So, you know, all this is going to change drastically. Tell us about the women who serve in the IDF and the critical role that they play. The Israeli army is the only army that from its get-go conscripted women to mandatory service. In 48, they were actually fighting, but after 48, they sent them to do mostly office work. But since the 90s, roles started to open up for women as well. And uh, you see women as a fighter pilot, and you see women today in uh, different combat roles and many different units. Some units are still closed for women. But on the other hand, they found out that women could do some jobs much better than men. They have better verbal abilities, more patience. More mature, which is very, very important. Using them for instructional purposes, it's very, very good. And for all the different intelligence or technological positions, I think at least 50% today are women. What the IDF is really trying to do, because Israel is not a big country, is really to utilize as best it can the human resource element. When Prime Minister Ben-Gurion created the IDF, it was not only to make an army, but to unify the nation. Ben-Gurion had this idea of the IDF as the melting pot and the creator of the Israeli society. And uh, since then, there were many debates among those who study the IDF in terms of the civil-military aspects. One of the findings was that there are more intermarriages between the different groups as a result of service in the IDF. If you look at surveys of uh, trust towards Israeli institutions, the courts, the government, the parliament, the Knesset, as they call it, the journalists, the media... Police, the IDF, is by large margin consistently above everyone else. So yes, the IDF is very much the one institution that still everyone feels part of. Either you are serving it, or your husband, or your wife, or your kids, or everyone is involved. And then when you are involved, you also know it's not perfect. But then you also care about it. How does the Palestinian who lives in Israel, compare his life and prospects relative to his peers that live in Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, or other Arab nations. I was visiting the military administration in the West Bank. The Israeli military administration gave us a brief, like 2014 or 15, when there was the height of the Arab Spring, horrible civil war in Syria. And I was asking the Israeli officer there whether the Palestinian young person maybe 20, 21, 22, does he feel lucky because he's in the West Bank? And at the time, the West Bank, things were very, very stable. There was work, life was comparably safe and quiet. And his reply was, you're making the wrong analogy because they're not comparing themselves to the Egyptian or the Syrian or the Libyan young person. They are comparing themselves to you or to your kid. They want to have whatever you have. How would you compare the violence in Gaza versus the civil war in Syria? 
there's a huge difference. What happened in Syria, and it's remarkable how this has been forgotten so quickly, but this is the nature of the media and the nature of the public attention, the destruction and the death toll was on such more massive scale. I mean, the numbers, you had like six or seven million people who became refugees and left Syria either to Turkey or to Jordan. The estimates are more than half a million people who lost their lives. What is the scale for civilian deaths in Gaza? So in Gaza, it's very difficult to know the numbers. The public health ministry of Hamas, which is the public health ministry of Gaza, which is controlled by Hamas, is the one who's giving us the numbers. The numbers that they are giving is around 20,000 something killed. And uh, they estimate another 7,000 under the rubble. But what they never say is how many Hamas militants are there from these numbers. The IDF estimates that it killed 7,000 Hamas terrorists. The IDF didn't provide numbers of uninvolved that were killed. This is the estimation that there is at least for every Hamas militant, there is a civilian that was killed. But this is relatively to other militaries operating in such environment, it's a good ratio relative to this very difficult circumstances where the Hamas is so much embedded within the population. Why is Hamas hiding and fighting in hospitals, schools, and residential communities? Why are they using human shields? The Hamas captives spoke about it in their interrogation. It's the obvious reasons. They say, you know, if we are under a hospital, if we are in school, we know that the IDF will be reluctant to hit us. And if it will hit us, it will lose in the public opinion. It will limit its ability to continue to operate. So either way, there will be consequences And they said, now, if we need to sacrifice some of our population, so be it, because the population is only means to an end. Now, Hamas is not ISIS in the sense that ISIS came from the outside and they took over a city which was not theirs. And they were outside fighters. Hamas is also embedded in the population. The Hamas terrorist is coming out of his own house. He has his family. The problematic thing here is that the population really supports this idea. They are willing to sacrifice their own. How would you compare the local population view of Hezbollah in northern Lebanon, where the fighters are not local? Not that Hezbollah doesn't camouflage itself within the villages and within the civilian population, but Hezbollah is a bit more sensitive to the fate of the population than Hamas. There are a million people who evacuated Gaza City and moved to refugee camps where they live in dire circumstances. They have friends and relatives who have been killed. How does that population feel about Hamas instigating this conflict? It's hard to say, but we can see also that there was a lot of support for this. And it was seen as a great victory. Hamas is also a repressive regime. And if you show that you are defiant, they will make sure that you either arrested or killed. At this point, we don't see signs of moving against Hamas, but we do hear voices of this contempt of where Hamas led us. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about with the IDF? I was very worried for some years that the IDF is neglecting its core, which is the ground forces and the regular units, and it's becoming more addicted to the high technology and to the special operations and the quick solutions and then neglected really the reserves and the regular units. And 
And what I believe and I hope for is this seventh served as a wake-up call. And now the IDF is shifting back toward rebuilding itself, understanding that you need the large army, you need the masses, you need the reserve, you need everyone to participate, and you need to build it from the ground up. So going back to the basic professionalism, which is very, very important, not to rely too much on the technology. Technology is important. The realism of war is, and as we see it also in Ukraine, that you need the large army and you need the reserve. Thanks to Eitan for joining us today. If you missed our previous podcast, the topic was Saving Congress. Our speaker was Philip Wallach, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Philip is the author of the book entitled Why Congress, which describes the role of the legislature in the American constitutional framework and why we need to encourage Congress to legislate instead of delegating its responsibility to the executive branch, the bureaucracy, and the courts. Philip explained why McCarthy was sacked as Speaker of the House and why the House is abandoning centralized control in its leadership and instead moving towards decentralizing responsibilities to its committees and why that may be a better way to pass bipartisan legislative compromises. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.